Whether you've got an ergonomic keyboard and mouse or that new gaming chair, you take measures to ensure that your gaming experience is comfortable. So why shouldn't your lower half be just as comfortable as your top? Buddha boxers use a super breathable bamboo fabric that increases air circulation and absorbs more moisture than cotton, which means you can focus on one thing, gaining XP and wetting your pants. (laughs) Discover underwear zen and stay fresh throughout your gaming bender for 20% off. Visit www.buddhaboxers.com and use code ACHIEVEMENT. That's B-U-D-D-H-A, boxers.com and promo code ACHIEVEMENT. Hello and Hello. welcome to Achievement Oriented, the Ringer's video game podcast, part of the Ringer Podcast Network. I am Ben Lindbergh, writer for TheRinger.com. On the other line in Los Angeles, admiring shirtless Mario. Eyes over here, Jason. Pay attention, <laughs> please. It's Jason Concepcion. Hello, Jason. Hello. Space Week at the Ringer. It's wonderful. All week long, as Love promised, it. we have been delivering space-related content. We have both written space-related articles, so this is going to be a space-themed episode. And later in the episode, we're going to talk Metroid. There's a new Metroid game out for 3DS, and a big Metroid anniversary just passed. So we have a piece up on the site by Rob Harvilla, our colleague, who is going to join us. We are also going to be talking to Molly Bittner, who works for NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. She works on the Cassini mission, which is ending today, has ended already. If you're listening to this on Friday, she's going to tell us about her work, which is far too complex for people like us to understand, but she's going to dumb it down and explain it. She's also a big gamer and a fan of the podcast. So we're going to talk about Destiny with her and some other space-related games. Also going to bring in our pal, Justin Charity, in just a few minutes to talk about some more serious issues in the gaming world these days. But I wanted to ask you about your return to No Man's Sky, which we've been teasing a little bit. We've been saying we should go back because there have been various updates to the game and patches, and we have to go back. And you wrote a piece for The Ringer about the ongoing search for extraterrestrial life. Spoilers, no life yet, but it's out there. Yeah, something's got to be. It's definitely out there. It's just, I mean, playing the odds. But you dove back into No Man's Sky as part of your preparation for that piece. So... What did you find? Is it different from the last time? Is it significantly improved? Uh, It is improved in the sense that there's different game modes now. There's a survival mode. There's the regular exploration mode. And there's a mode where, which is the mode that I ended up playing the most, which is just you have complete, you have infinite resources. You don't ever have to mine. You just explore. Mm -hmm. And really, to me, that's the the core of the game is just, um, you know, like the, the mining, the combat sucks. Building the bases is not that great. What's really fun is just traveling from planet to planet and seeing these different uh, life forms, uh, different landscapes, different geography. Um, That's the thing I really enjoyed about it. And there's really something hypnotic about it. Like you just want to go to the next place, want to keep jumping to the next next, uh, galaxy. Um, And that, that part of it, whatever that thing is, um, it's kind of it's you know it's it's um, there's nothing really tangible to it, but it is it it's compelling. Mm-hmm. 
does the universe feel any less empty than it did when we first played the game? Because there's like kind of not really, but sort of a multiplayer component yeah. now. Like you can kind of meet up with people in a I mean, disembodied uh, way. I, tr- I I did not even mess with that. I just want to go. To, yeah. I just want to travel the galaxy. I don't care if I meet anybody else. Yeah. 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 No, <laughs> I want the, the universe to myself. Yeah. But yeah, it was just at a certain point. You just start to feel like, at least originally, it felt like I was in a loop and it was just kind of jump to a new galaxy and do the same thing and then jump again and do the same thing. And there just wasn't enough variety, but it seems like they've addressed that at least a little bit. And the game is even prettier now, right? Even prettier grass. I don't know. It (laughs) seems slightly prettier. It's really, it's hard to, it's hard to say that it's significantly prettier. It's prettier. There's yeah, there's more mm-hmm. stuff in the grass that flies around in the air more, uh, but yeah, it's it's really just about like the infinite resources. It was it was pretty enough before this. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, based on this, I don't know yeah. if I'm gonna schedule a return <laughs> to No Man's <laughs> you Sky. Just try it. Just try it. Yeah, I mean, I still admire what it was trying to do and what it did do, yeah. and it's uh, it's still a singular game, but. I don't know that there's enough incentive yeah. to pull me back in. Maybe someday. Keep making those updates. Yeah. Hello Games, Sean Murray. Keep working. Maybe you'll get me back right. someday. <laughs> <laughs> right. All right. Let's bring in Justin Charity. Last Sunday, the extremely popular, vexingly popular uh, Swedish streaming personality named PewDiePie um, was playing PUBG, Player Unknown Battlegrounds, this, the game of the summer, uh, when he uttered a racial slur, the N-word. Uh, it's not his first foray into being a piece of garbage, but um, the interesting thing about it is this time, uh, game designer Sean Vanneman, who you might know from Firewatch, whose company Campo Santo is uh, one of the really interesting uh, indie developers out there, um, threatened to file a DMCA complaint uh, regarding all the videos that um, PewDiePie made that contain footage from Firewatch. Uh, and we're joined now by our ringer colleague, Justin Charity, gamer extraordinaire. He finishes games extremely fast. <laughs> who wrote a story about this on The Ringer uh, that came out a couple days ago called Can Copyright Law Bring Down PewDiePie? Justin, how are you? I'm well. I'm well. I'm, ga- I'm gaming. <laughs> I remember the days when the world would just let you play Persona 5 and yeah. write about that. Now, these days, it's yeah, now Gamergate. It's it it's got really streaming. heavy. The yeah, last two really pieces did. about gaming that I, I've written have, have been about Bad gamer behavior. Yes. Uh, I'm disappointed (laughs) in everyone, frankly. (laughs) Yeah. So we had you on not that long ago because you just wrote a piece about streaming and the streaming phenomenon and industry. And now you are writing about that in a completely different context. So how pervasive is this kind of problem that we're seeing? Is this a... PewDiePie issue, or is this a streaming issue of which he is maybe the most notable example? Well, I think before 
both, I think before it's a streaming issue and before it's a PewDiePie issue, I just, you know, I remember it being a phenomenon. So like, again, we're talking about a white Swede gamer who used the term nigger just as like an, an exclamation when he was frustrated with playing player unknown battlegrounds and he was using it on a voice chat. And, you know, I, I remember when lots of sort of mainstream games on consoles started having voice chats like that. Mm-hmm. I, that's one of the earliest things I remember about voice chats. And I, I mean, I think I it was like a component of yes. why I, I, I think it, it was a large component of why I sort of drifted away from video games is like a thing that I did for a decade. It's just, I found, I found a lot of that culture that was sort of familiar. It's sort of the language that you would see in, forum culture right of the early aughts in in video Mm -hmm, game forums and in other kinds of forums but it was sort of you know having all of a sudden in your headset or you know on your tv stereo um it it just felt very alienating um i'm black a lot of that stuff wouldn't even necessarily at that time be about um targeting individuals it would just be sort of a default uh, way of expressing rage and sort of teen dickishness um, mm-hmm. to to other people on these voice chats. So I think the problem starts there, right? But, you know, I, yeah, I can't help but think of it in that context in a sort of original sin context of, of multiplayer voiceover chats um, mm-hmm. rather than thinking of it as a problem that's unique um, to PewDiePie or to let's plays and, and modern streaming culture. Yeah. And this has been an issue in esports too. Yeah. Various high profile players have said terrible things and have been suspended or fined or disciplined or just really have been kind of driven out of esports because of the things that they have been caught on camera and on chat saying. So I guess it's just the anonymity of the internet but I guess these people are, are not actually anonymous. These are celebrities now because of how streaming and esports have evolved. And so when they say these things, it, it very quickly blows up. And I guess we haven't really reached the point where this industry is, I, I guess, established enough that there are norms completely preventing this kind of behavior. Well, I will say this. I will say that in ways that forum culture used to obscure because users would be anonymous for the most part in ways that early um, voice chats would obscure just because there wasn't really a video streaming component to video game culture, you know, in the same way, maybe 10 years ago. Uh, you know, I can't help but look at someone like PewDiePie and and just want to point out that he's 27, right? Like, I think otherwise it's easy to sort of look at it and think, well, this is video games culture. It's a bunch of teens. It's in a lot of cases a bunch of ma- like rude male teens, right? And the thing mm-hmm. that's striking about PewDiePie and this sort of past year, <laughs> past years of his sort of uh, edgelord, you know, shock jock um, controversies is just that he's, He's 27 years old. He's not, you know, I think he, he, in a way, the fact that he's on camera and he was caught on camera and he does all of these 
he does his whole shtick on camera, at least for a lot of people, crystallized the sense that like, oh, this isn't just a teen problem. This isn't just a thing that you can sort of gesture at and sort of brush off and say, well, it's kids being kids and they'll grow out of it. It's it's like you said, it's a it's a video game industry problem in a lot of ways. And it I you know, I'm just frustrated in the sense that I don't really know what whether you're talking about esports or whether you're talking about, you know, let's plays, it's sort of I don't know how you train that behavior and that insensitivity and that alienation out of video game culture. I just I don't know how you do it. Um, on the one hand, uh, using copyright law to kind of strike back against PewDiePie and by extension, any streamer who would use similar language and or perform similar acts while playing a developer's video game seems like kind of a mortal threat to streaming culture writ large. At the same time, um, I think a lot of these, a lot of developers depend on streamers as a kind of advertising now. Um, I mean, how, how much of a, how much of a threat is this really? Well, it's funny because, okay, so Sean Veneman, like you, like you said, um, announced this, announced that this would be their strategy to sort of right. strike back at PewDiePie just for the culture yeah. <laughs> as it were right mm-hmm. on Twitter. And Sean Veneman actually hasn't, I believe hasn't tweeted since, September twelfth, mm-hmm. and, and his last few tweets with a few people left on a cliffhanger, basically saying, "We'll see. What, we'll see what our lawyers say." <laughs> right? Um, and this great cliffhanger of, first of all, is that um, you know, it's it's hard for me as somebody who's not a lawyer, obviously, um, and who also has sort of complex feelings about whether that is a, is an appropriate way to accomplish these ends like it's hard for me to to know what the implications of that are right of saying of of a publisher no matter how large or small saying we are going to engage we're we're going to look at copyright law as a form of like editorial retribution again with pewdiepie you know, you couldn't find a less sympathetic case study, I think, than PewDiePie. But it, I, you know, I, I think it's actually a pretty controversial strategy. Um, and I will say in the first 24 hours of coverage after Sean Vanneman announced that they would, they would try to use um, copyright takedown notices on YouTube in order to punish PewDiePie um, as much as they could punish PewDiePie, who has tons of videos using tons of video games worth of content, you know, I, I don't know that the first wave of coverage of, of that strategy really has acknowledged how dicey that is. It, and it, it's especially weird in a year, right, where, you know, I think Persona 5 demonstrated a lot of angst between streamers and publishers in terms of, uh, you know, figuring out how much power publishers should exercise and how much discretion and, and and demands they should put on streamers in terms of what they stream versus what they don't stream. I just think it's it's a lot of uncomfortable questions and I think the fact that PewDiePie is an unsympathetic dude for a lot of reasons is is not a reason to paper over how complicated the implications of that are. Yeah, and I think Vanaman definitely had some misgivings about wielding this weapon. I know that there is a, a BuzzFeed story They contacted him after his comments, and he did issue one takedown notice, and there was a video, 
I guess, the Firewatch video that had almost 6 million views, and it was removed on Sunday night. And Vanneman's quote in this BuzzFeed story is, I wish there was a clear way to say we don't want our work associated with hate speech, even accidental hate speech, if that's what it was. I regret using a DMCA takedown. Censorship is not the best thing for speech. And if I had a way to contact PewDiePie and take the video down, I probably would. He's a bad fit for us and we're a bad fit for him. So it sounds like they're kind of uncomfortable with doing this, but, you know, and and setting that precedent. And obviously in his tweets, he acknowledged that there is this symbiotic relationship between developers and publishers and streamers and everyone benefits from this. And they've certainly benefited from PewDiePie's videos and the publicity. So it's hard to know where to draw the line and when it's okay to take down something and whether it is jeopardizing the whole industry or whether this is just going to be a, a singular event. But, okay, here's the thing I want to pick you guys' brains about, right? Is is I, I watched a lot of PewDiePie videos earlier this year when I was writing about, you know, the game streaming basically is, is just a... A cottage industry and one thing I, i'm trying to figure out now is let if we look at this beyond pewdiepie it would it what is it about, i'm trying to figure out what it is about the audience for for a lot of these streams and and just for this particular culture in general that sort of it just feels like it rewards that kind of shock jock um proto alt-right archetype of YouTube personality. Am I, I mean, am I exaggerating that? No, it it I think feels like it's a real thing in sure, this. I, I think, you know, when you talked about uh, kind of the tenor of early chat games, like chat games of the early aughts, first couple of Call of Duties on consoles, surely like that was, that was a thing that happened quite a bit. Um, you'd hear that all the time from kids, from like children. And I just think that there's a, uh, you know, there's an audience for for disaffected, like, white kids to watch a handsome like eurocentric human being push boundaries in a way that feels dangerous and that they can vicariously live through um and that in some way encapsulates like forum and early gaming culture you know to them so i think that's the appeal honestly it's it's like a talk show but like the worst kind of talk show you know right yeah i it makes sense it makes sense it's just i I don't know. I, I think of video games as such a diverse art form that it is it again, as much time as I've spent in, in forums, I, I am always sort of surprised at who the archetype, like who the archetypical gamer is for the fact that that video games are such a wild and diverse and, you know, as an art form contains multitudes. But this archetype seems so um, antithetical to what I think of when I think of video game culture. So I don't know. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's strange that after all of these years, you know, PewDiePie is the archetypical gamer. And it, it seems like nothing can really change that in video game culture. And I, I don't want to believe that that's true, but I'm just not sure why it nonetheless appears to be true. Well, I think the, I think the other thing is that video games, because they are so interactive and so immersive, um, they're really kind of the last vestige of um, pure the, – the last place where you can exercise like pure selfish, selfishness yeah. in, in a realm that feels like life, you know, um, mm. and 
So I think that's why you see so much pushback when so-called SJWs or, you know, try (laughs) to change and or influence gaming culture because there's this real, you know, feeling of territorialness over this um, zone where, you know, a certain kind of Mountain Dew swilling white kid can just do whatever the fuck they want. And it's really the last space um, in the Western culture where that is true until, you know, like Trump fully takes over America and and remakes it in his image. Right. But even with that, it's sort of, it's still true that it's the, if you think of all of this as sort of demographic wars in America, then it, yeah, video games are maybe still the last retreat they're the last bunker (laughs) left oh that's sad to think about yeah (laughs) yeah on that note we we better let you go so thank you justin for coming on you're you're now the like the national affairs correspondent bridging the political world and the video game world you've done it (laughs) always always forever and always (laughs) thank you justin still gaming yeah (laughs) all right guys (laughs) All right, let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. And we'll be right back with Molly Bittner from NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. HelloFresh is on a mission to save home cooking because it's just too good to go away. HelloFresh is the meal kit delivery service that makes cooking more fun so you can focus on the whole experience, not just the final plate. Each week, HelloFresh creates new delicious recipes with step-by-step instructions designed to take around 30 minutes for everyone from novices, that's me, to seasoned home cooks short on time. HelloFresh sources the freshest ingredients, just like it says in the name, measured to the exact quantities needed so there's no food waste, and HelloFresh employs two full-time registered dietitians on staff who review each recipe to ensure that it's nutritionally balanced. HelloFresh delivers food to your doorstep in a recyclable insulated box for free, and it's now offering light fall meals, as well as breakfast options for less than $10 a meal. I've had HelloFresh this week. They were nice enough to send me a sample, and it was delicious. Last night, I had some steak and nectarine salad with arugula, pecans, and feta cheese. Just before I recorded this, I had mushroom gravy chicken over couscous with lemony arugula. Sorry if I'm making your mouth water. It was just as good as it sounds. And you too can have HelloFresh. At a discount, for $30 off your first week of HelloFresh, visit HelloFresh.com and enter Achievement 30. HelloFresh.com, Achievement 30. So I have been an admirer of Cassini's mission, NASA's Cassini mission from afar. I guess we've all been admiring it from afar, but we are talking today to someone who has been admiring it from afar much more directly than we have. She is an aerospace and systems engineer at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. She has been working on Cassini. She's also a big gamer and an achievement-oriented listener. So, of course, we had to have her on because today is a milestone day. We're talking a couple days before you're hearing this, but as you are hearing this, Cassini, if all has gone as planned, has just entered the atmosphere of Saturn, bringing an end to an almost 20-year mission, even longer if you go back to the planning stages. And so this is the perfect time to talk to the NASA listener that we happen to have, Molly Bittner. Thank you for coming in, Molly. Thanks, Molly. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. So if anyone listening has not been aware of Cassini, you've been missing out. I have spent many happy, serene, 
odd hours looking at images from Cassini. So for anyone who has not had that pleasure yet, of course, all those images are and will continue to be up there for people to admire for years to come. But for people who haven't done that already, can you fill them in on what Cassini was and its mission and its incredible successes? Of course, I'd love to. So Cassini uh, started development in the 1990s, so when I was in grade school. All of the people that I work with now were busy designing this Same. spacecraft. It's great. <laughs> yeah. um, and in 1997, we launched. And it took us a while to get all the way out to Saturn. We had to do some crazy flybys of Venus and Earth to get out all the, all the way out there. We didn't get to Saturn until 2004. Our prime mission lasted until 2008. We got an extension until 2010. And then we got our second and final uh, extension until 2017. And that is what is mm-hmm. going to end this Friday, um, the 15th, today when you're listening. And we are going to mm-hmm. plummet the spacecraft into yeah. Saturn's atmosphere. Ended did in you a blaze of glory. <laughs> glory. Yeah. It's all over. <laughs> are you responsible? Did you did you send this order? Did you calculate this trajectory? I wish I could take credit for all of that, but I can't. Um, <laughs> so there's been a lot of planning. There was a, different, a bunch of different ways we could have ended the mission. So um, we could have put the spacecraft into this really large orbit around the rings such that we would never impact any protected body in like 500 years. We could escape from the Saturnian system, sort of like Voyager, and just drift off right. into mm-hmm. space. Um, and then there was this idea of why not just you know plummet into Saturn itself and collect some data on the way down. And that's actually what Galileo did at Jupiter. Um, and it's a nice way to collect some really cool science at the end. And it's really just a fun engineering problem, too, just to plummet a spacecraft into a planet, right? Who wants to do that? I do. (laughs) Um, (laughs) can check that off the bucket list. And so, yeah, people decided that before I even uh, joined their project. And so there's two important points to keep in mind. So the one is uh, protecting um, protected bodies in the Saturnian system. So Titan and Enceladus are two moons of Saturn that could potentially harbor life. We have not found any life, but they could potentially harbor life because they have water. And we don't want the spacecraft mm-hmm. to crash into those things in the future. Um, but we have and really- we know that yeah. largely because of Cassini, right? That's exactly correct. Yes, that's exactly mm-hmm. correct. Um, but we have great models at NASA, so we could put it in an orbit that would limit the chances of that happening anytime in the future. But we like to be safe at NASA too. We, we want to guarantee it. Mm-hmm. So how do we guarantee mm-hmm. it? We need to get it out of there or we needed to destroy it. Um, so right. Prime directive. That's exactly right. So, And then the other important point was just that we can get some really great science, some in situ science, meaning that we can get science in the environment, right? We can actually pull gas into some of our um, instruments and actually collect things in the actual atmosphere rather than from afar. You touched on it just now, but what are some of the things that we've learned about our solar system from Cassini? We've learned a lot about our solar system, mostly about Saturn, but um, like I said, on the way out to Saturn, we had to fly by a couple of planets. So we do that uh, as a gravity assist, Mm -hmm. right? So we flew by Venus twice and Earth and Jupiter to get all the way out there. It took us a long time to get out there, so we did science at both of those Venus flybys and at Jupiter. We originally planned to maybe not do that, concentrate on making sure the spacecraft was healthy for its prime mission, but of course, we're, we're... building the spacecraft and operating the spacecraft for the scientists. We learned a lot about those planets. And the biggest things we've learned are actually at Saturn itself. So the first thing we did was we dropped off the Huygens probe onto Titan in 2004. You can see some really cool pictures of the surface of Titan. So for all mm-hmm. of you playing Destiny 2 out there on <laughs> Titan, Saturn, Saturn's moon, we have actual <laughs> pictures of the surface of that moon. 
um, from Cassini. Thank you very much. And so we've learned a lot about Titan, um, and we've learned a lot about Enceladus. Um, one of my favorite things was, uh, you know, that we discovered that um, Enceladus isn't just a block of ice. It's actually, it has a liquid water ocean underneath the surface, and um, the cracks of ice on the surface actually crack open and geysers shoot out of it, which is a really cool finding. Um, but there's just a wealth of knowledge out there, and the science community is really great. I am just a lowly engineer operating the spacecraft, driving it around <laughs> Saturn, and the scientists do all the heavy lifting, lifting with the discoveries, yeah. So how, how long does it take to send an update in terms of, uh, when you're steering the, the spacecraft, so you're going to send a message, okay, turn 45 degrees, whatever. Yeah. How long does that message take to go to Cassini, let's say, you know, its last position around Saturn? Yeah, so the approximation I always use is an hour and a half. So I think at the end of mission on on Friday, today, um, it'll be 83 minutes, but hour and a half is a usually good um approximation for that time. And that varies depending on how far away the spacecraft is from the Earth, where the Saturn is in its orbit, where Earth is in its orbit. But an hour and a half is a good approximation. So I, I sit at my console any time of the day, could be in the middle of the night, right. send a command, takes an hour and a half to get there. And then I have to wait another hour and a half right. to get signal back from the spacecraft that everything went as planned. Wow. So imagine yeah. texting someone and taking three hours to get there. I know like, all about Are it. Are you Believe okay? <laughs> yeah. I just watched the little typing uh, typing balloon sit there forever, and then I know all about right. it. <laughs> yeah. And the images are just incredible. Even the ones that maybe are not telling us things that we didn't know, they're just amazing to look at. And I have a post up on the site that Molly helped out with, which is just canvassing people who worked on Cassini getting them to pick their favorite Cassini images and explain why they like them so much. And my amazing editor, Mallory Rubin, was just editing that piece and getting choked up, just yes. looking at the images and getting reading. Getting choked up. Doesn't, doesn't, doesn't take that much to get Mal emotional, as Jason knows, but this is a, a good reason to do that. And I feel the same way every time I look at these images, just apart from the new knowledge that we have because of it, it's just, it's incredible to... I mean, not only put into perspective just how far away we are and how big everything is, but just that we were able to send this spacecraft out there and have it operating so successfully and so long. So good job, Molly. I know it was all you. <laughs> I know. I'll take credit for all of it. No, it was the great team that we have over at NASA. So everything went well because of them. Yeah. And some of the people that you joined, I mean, they've been on Cassini for decades since the very beginning. And I can't even imagine... What this feels like, I mean, I'm I'm sure it is a happy feeling. It's a job well done, but at the same time, this is the life's work for a lot of people. Yeah, it is. So we had a press briefing this morning, and the project manager, Olmay, spoke, and he started to get a little bit emotional. I could see it in his face a little bit. Um, but a pe the people that have been in this project for 20 or 30 years, mm. it's it's like a part of them, you know? Yeah. Um, and... As I've been asked, you know, what, what are your feelings like on ending this mission over the past year? Usually my response is, is ah, I've only been on the project four years. It's a great learning experience. I have the rest of my career ahead of me. Um, and while all those things are true and I can carry on some of the knowledge that I've gained, this last week it's really started to hit me that it's, it's, it's ending. Um, and even though I haven't been on the project for 20 years, like some of these people have who are really attached, you know, I've still come in at 3 o'clock in the morning to send commands up to this this thing floating around Saturn, this machine, and I hear back from it yeah. in the form of data. And I'm so I'm talking to this machine at Saturn, and I will no longer be able to talk to it. 
It's, it's, and yeah. the only thing I'll have left are these memories and these pictures. And I, I think it started to hit me on Monday morning. We had an event at the Griffith Observatory, um, a sort of a farewell. And I sat there thinking, wow, I'll never be able to talk to that spacecraft again. And I got a little bit sad. This is touching. <laughs> yes. Is there touching. will be other spacecraft. Will there? We hope so. <laughs> Not um, for a while, I guess, but yeah. <laughs> Uh, talk about how one becomes a uh, flight engineer for yeah a spacecraft. Yeah. Wow. Um, what a thing to say. What a what a what a what a what a string of words to to, to put together there. What a daunting task. Yeah. How can I ever do that? Um, so as a kid, I wasn't one of those people that was like, "Ooh, I really want to work at NASA. I have to." I was one of those kids that was running around in the woods by myself, being a weirdo and like playing my Super Nintendo and playing with Legos and like doing things that kids do, right? I really just loved to explore things. But as I started to, you know, go through school, I was just really good at math. And I remember uh, sitting on the couch with my mother in high school as I started to apply for colleges, thinking about I'm really good at math, and we pulled up an article that women are needed to be engineers, right? So I started looking at the list, and I actually started out as a civil engineer, and I only lasted one semester. Um, and then I switched to aerospace engineering, and I loved it. You know, it, it's hard. It's challenging. There's lots of math. There's lots of physics. There's lots of nights with no sleep. There's lots of homework and study sessions and getting help after school. Um, and there were times when I was like, why am I doing this? This is really hard. But looking back on it, it's all worth it because now I am where I am today. So um, between my junior and senior year in college, I went to Georgia Tech and Atlanta and got an aerospace engineering degree. And between those two years, I got an intern internship at NASA Ames, which is in Northern California, and did pretty well there. And I got recruited from JPL out of college and went straight here straight right after here. I graduated. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So um, you're talking about math and physics and all the things you need. So describe in as, in as layman's a way as you can. Layman's. Uh, I will try. Um, you're, so you're, you need to slingshot Cassini around Venus in order to get uh, it moving towards Saturn. What is involved in that? What do you have to do? So there is a lot of background, right? We all had to take classes in aerospace engineering on orbital mechanics, and that's basically what that problem is. It's an orbital mechanics problem, all a function of gravity and speed and mass of the spacecraft and mass of the bodies that you're floating around. But the great thing about NASA is that they've been doing this for a while, right. and a lot of that, they're in models and computers. Sure. And um, in particular, this Venus flyby obviously happened well before I was at JPL. Um, but as we're going around the Saturnian system now and all of our orbits that Cassini take, has taken in the past four years since I've been there, we have a navigation team. Mm. And they have a bunch of tools that guide the spacecraft around Saturn. And um, it's all based in orbital mechanics equations. And my job is basically to design maneuvers when we fire the engines on the spacecraft. And that gets us in a certain orbit. And then navigators are sort of like Google Maps, right, for the spacecraft. And they direct us in this certain path that we take. So, But underlying all of that are the equations. But I'm not sitting there. I'm not like hidden figures writing on a whiteboard. <laughs> like, I am not a human computer. We have real computers nowadays. Thank goodness. <laughs> That's good. And so what role does video gaming play in your life? What does it give you? What do you get from it? Uh, yeah, so... Um, Video games are uh, a great pastime that I have, and yeah. I uh, find that it's my best way to relax after sure. a long day at work. I am not the type to 
sit at home and watch TV. I get really anxious when I watch television. Um, not really anxious. I shouldn't embellish, but I need to do something. I need sure. to accomplish something. I'm a person that on PlayStation, I have to get all the trophies. Wow. Right? Um, <laughs> uh-huh. Platinum to Uncharted Lost Legacy. I, I need to get trophies because wow. <laughs> I have to feel accomplished. Listen. Wow. So, um, yeah, so I, they just give me something to do and they give me immersion, right? So they, mm. they let, when I'm watching TV, unless it's a really good movie, I my, my brain doesn't really shut off. Right. But if I'm playing a really good game and I get immersed in this world and in an action sequence, I sort of get to actually detach a little bit and not be so um, on all the yeah. time, right? So that's really what it does mm. for me, yeah. And mm-hmm. I imagine, I mean, the same reason that I think a lot of people play video games is it, kind of shortens the loop between uh, that really satisfying human uh, feeling of planning something and then achieving it. Ooh, yes. You know, you get it You get it in a lot smaller chunks, right? You plan something, you just get the, get the achievement, you get the medal, you get the, is that part of, that's part of why you like video games so much? So part, planning is part of it. I like to avoid planning if I can and just jump right in. Nice. But I was not that way with, um, Final Fantasy XII, the Zodiac Age wow. that was released like a month or two ago, I planned so much to make sure all my characters were perfect in the right class and mm. all this sort of stuff, and I spent way too much time planning. But usually I just like to jump in, yeah. and um, for me it's all about just getting absorbed and really losing um, knowledge of what's going on around me. Mm-hmm. I was wondering if you had played something like Kerbal Space Program, for instance, which maybe is the closest game <laughs> to the kind of thing that you do every day. But maybe, I mean, I know that you've been playing a ton of Destiny. Maybe you just want something that is far away from math and physics and science and is just more of a quick twitch activity. I, I think actually the latter is probably correct. Mm. Um, I have dabbled mm. in Kerbal Space Program. I feel like I need to give it more of a shot. It's actually become a goal of me because a lot of people ask me that right. all the time. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but when I when I play it, I love it, but it 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 doesn't get get me immersed like other right. games do. I don't I don't feel like into the action, right? I actually play games mm-hmm. for the action sequences more so than I don't really play a lot of Sims. I don't I like story, and I think in the back of my head, I want to be like one of those people that I really like video games for story, and I do. I love Uncharted games. I love all these other games that have great stories. But at the end of the day, if I don't have a good action sequence that right. grips me in there. I'm I'm not as immersed as I would like to be. So I have been playing lots of Destiny, and I have been loving it. Are you more of a yeah. PVE or a PvP person in Destiny? Um, mostly PVE. I have played PvP. I am not the best. So when my kill-death ratio is above 1.0, I am happy. That's pretty good. One, above 1 is good. Right. That's what the way yes. I look at it. Right. Yeah. That's exactly <laughs> the way I look at it. And and Destiny has a moderately robust RPG component. How how much thought do you put into your character and how you're going to set them up? What class you're going to do? Who what? So who do you play as? I'm a hunter. Okay. Um, I really like games where I can move around quickly. Yeah. So that's why I chose the hunter. Um, and I do. I don't think there's as much planning. I do get a lot into stats. Right. Mm-hmm. I also like some of my favorite games are like The Witcher Three and other RPGs. Mm-hmm. So as much as I try to avoid pen and paper planning, even though I do that sometimes because I get a little bit obsessive, let's just be honest, um, I do love playing with new armor sets, getting my stats up. Um, Dark Souls and Bloodborne are also some of my favorite games, and just tweaking every little stat category Mm -hmm. that I can to make my character the best that I can is something that I really love to do. And also cool outfits. Yeah. You know, everybody likes to get a cool outfit. (laughs) 
Yeah. I assume you played the first Destiny. So what are your observations so far about differences, improvements in Destiny 2? Yeah. So I did play the first Destiny. I only, I was one of those people that only played it for the first month or two and I dropped off Uh and I did not give it a second chance. Mm. Um, I got bored and I felt like it was repetitive. I liked it. I thought it had solid shooting mechanics. I had fun playing with Mm -hmm. my friends. And while I, you know, story is not the forefront of my games, I noticed that it was sort of lacking. But I, at the end of the day, I felt like it was repetitive. I was going to the same locations. Yeah. Um, and Destiny 2, while there are locations, and now that I've, I've finished the campaign, I'm level 20, I'm doing strikes and doing patrols, and I am visiting these similar locations, but there's something that feels fresh about it. Yeah. Every time I go on a patrol, it feels a little bit different. Um, so I am not a Destiny 1 expert by any means, and I've listened to a couple of people talk about in-depth comparisons, but I'll just tell you this, that I've felt a lot more engaged. I felt like mm. there's a lot to do. I'm not running around a map looking for something to do. I find that there's icons all over the place for me to just to jump in and level up. I'm not confused by the leveling system. Mm-hmm. I find it quite easy to grasp. Um, so I've really, really been enjoying it. And also there's really pretty cutscenes, great yeah. music, so a lot to be engaged with. I'm enjoying it. Do you have a, a crew of people that you regularly play with? Yeah. Um, so two sort of crews. I've joined a clan. Wow. Uh, I'm it's in serious. a clan. It's for real now. I'm in a clan. <laughs> um, so I'm in the What's Good Guardians clan. Um, there, There's a, another podcast called What's Good Games, and I'm a big fan of theirs. And I've joined their clan. So I've played with a couple of other fans of that community. Mm-hmm. And then I've also played um, a couple of times with one of my guy friends here in L.A., my in real life friends. Um, and so we've played. We actually just played last night and got a step further in the Rat King Gun quest. Mm. So, so is, we're playing it. We're doing it. <laughs> is gaming, I mean, I would imagine that it's a pretty popular pastime at NASA. Do you have a lot of colleagues who you're comparing notes with on games or playing games with? You can't see me, but I'm nodding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. So there, I mean, not everyone plays video games, but there are a lot of people that play video games. So my um, one of my managers on Europa Clipper, because I also work on that uh, now that Cassini's ending, I've transitioned over to that project. And mm. he actually brought in his Nintendo Switch when it first came out. Yeah, and great. he was the one that convinced me to buy it because it was so awesome. <laughs> and then I have a couple <laughs> other friends. Um, another one of my friends, uh, we do lunch maybe every other week or so and talk about games. He's really deep into Persona 5 right now. So a lot of people... A fair amount of people play games at work, yeah, for sure. Well, do, do you have a do you have a uh, philosophy on? Um, I guess it's not technically spoilers, but if you're doing a mission, let's say the Rat King Gun Quest, um, how often do you look up what to do if you're stuck? Do you do you just wait till you're stuck, or do you look it up right away? Like this is what I have to do. This is where I have to go, and I have to go this and mine this many things and. I am generally the person that waits until I'm stuck to mm-hmm. look things up. Um, for this quest in particular, my friend that I'm on my headset with, he okay. he has up what to do. Right. Um, so, I, of course, I'm listening to him, so I can't really avoid right. being spoiled by my friend. But it's fun. I think it's sort of a different aspect. But um, most games, I wait. I wait until I'm stuck. I like to explore first, and then, but I do not like to hit my head up against a wall. Yeah. If I'm stuck on a puzzle, if I can't find, and of course, as I said, I'm a trophy hunter, so if I'm trying to find some treasure in a corner, right. I am not going to walk all over the map and look for it. <laughs> I will look up a YouTube video. Yeah. 
How do you fit gaming into that irregular schedule? You mentioned, you know, going in at three in the morning to send yeah. instructions to a distant spacecraft. Are you playing mostly, I mean, are there nights and weekends or are you working nights and weekends? What? How, how do you get your gaming in? Yeah, so um, operations is much different than design. So Cassini, the spacecraft, is in operations, and we can send up commands any time of the day, any day of the week, right? Weekends, 3 a.m., work hours, whatever. Um, now mm-hmm. that I'm sort of transitioning off as that project's ending, I've moved on to Europa, which is in the design phase, and we work normal hours. I work mm-hmm. from 8.30 to 6 every day, and I don't work weekends on Europa. Um, so nowadays, I fit most of it in nights and weekends, just like everybody else yeah. does that has a full-time job. And before then, I think I mostly did the same thing, um, except on the days where I knew I had to get up in the middle of the night. I'd right. make sure to get to bed and not play that extra hour of that game. Right? <laughs> yeah. Make sure to get your sleep if you're going to be yeah. sending up commands to a spacecraft. <laughs> yeah, right. You don't want to typo <laughs> instruction to a no many to the million public, dollar spacecraft. We cannot craft. typo commands, just to be clear. <laughs> okay. But yes, that's true. That's good. Yeah, it's good that you have some fail-safes that you've developed <laughs> yes. over the last several decades. Of course. So <laughs> is there anything you've played lately that you really enjoyed that you want to give a shout-out to that maybe we haven't had a chance to talk about on the show or devote enough time to? I think if I had to get a, a shout-out to something lately, and I'm not sure if you guys have touched on it, so tell me if you have, is Hellblade. It's nope. been one nope, of my favorite games this entire year. Um, it is mm-hmm. amazing. I beat it in one sitting on a Saturday <laughs> afternoon. I beat it in six hours and got the platinum trophy. Thank you very much, even though it wasn't that hard to get. Um, but that game is great. Uh, the, the graphics are pretty. The music is great. The whole sound design, I don't know if you guys have heard about it, but for anybody yes. that hasn't, you have these whispers in your ear mm. telling you. Ben loves stuff like this. He loves, a, he loves a horror game. Yeah. It was, it was so good. And just everything about it was great. Um, great action sequences, great exploration, some cool puzzles. Uh, I really liked it a lot. Ben, you going to try this? There's a lot of whispering in your I've, ear. And I've heard about it. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's meant to simulate some aspect of, of mental illness, right? And yeah. so you're, you're hearing the voices in the main character's head, yeah. essentially. Not yeah. for the faint of heart. And yeah, we're headphones. I'm the faint of heart. So. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> it is the faint of heart. What's, uh, what is the longest esti- like, estimate here? And not that if it'll get you in trouble with NASA, but what's the longest, like, unbroken run of gaming that you've ever put in longest unbroken run of gaming um maybe six to eight hours that's i, I i'm yeah i am actually i go to bed every night at 10 o'clock wow 10 30 i i don't stay wow. up super late once in a while i might stay up to midnight but i go to bed every night at 10 30 and wake up at 7 a.m and i need my sleep and i i don't really binge too much but i am very regimented about my gaming i, like suddenly, I, I feel terrible about myself suddenly <laughs> <laughs> that's what i do <laughs> what do you think is the most popular gaming genre among your nasa mm-hmm. colleagues that you know of Ooh, so the great thing about a bunch of my friends that game at work is we like different types of games so my my friend that i go out to lunch with every other week or so we we tend to like similar games we're both mostly PlayStation gamers and like RPGs and action games, though I'm not really too into the Persona anime type stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, But a couple of my friends at work really enjoy Blizzard games and things like that. So there's a a good mix, actually, different Mm. types of games. I'm trying to get... What's on your list? He won't. 
<laughs> yeah. What's next for you? Yeah. Uh, coming up this fall, so I'll play Destiny, I guess, the rest of the month. And the two biggest games I'm excited about this year are uh, the next Wolfenstein game yep. and then Shadow of mm-hmm. War. So those were yeah. two games that I really loved um, a couple of years ago when the first ones of those came out. And, and so I'm really looking forward to those. I can't wait mm-hmm. for the new Wolfenstein game, Ben. So good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I, I have completely missed the entire Wolfenstein series somehow. <laughs> Maybe this will be know. my first. Yeah, I don't know. So tell us about Europa Clipper and what is next for you at NASA and just NASA in general. Yeah, so after Friday, um, when Cassini is no more, I will transition full-time onto Europa, though as most of my Cassini team knows, I've been spending a lot of time on Europa the past couple of months anyways. Um, Because on Cassini, we have a rotating team of systems engineers who are lead on the sequences, and I have not been lead on a sequence since May. So I've been spending a lot of time in Europa land, and we are in the design phase. Um, So we are in our preliminary design phase, which means that we are writing requirements, designing what the spacecraft should do um, in order to meet science needs, and making it more detailed. And then once we pass a big gate review coming up, we'll, we'll really solidify that design and start building components and testing them. And so my main role over there is I'm on the flight systems engineering team, and that means I oversee the spacecraft as a whole, and I'm focusing on power functions. So do we have enough power to do this activity? Mm. Um, Sounds important. Yeah. (laughs) It's fun. I'm learning a lot. I've been given a great opportunity to have this role, and I'm really enjoying it. And it's something I'm really interested in. Um, I think power is a great sort of place to concentrate on. So I'm really excited to continue forward on this role going forward. Um, Europa Clipper has a lander on it. Now you talked before about how important it is to make sure that when you um, crash a spacecraft or uh, have a spacecraft interact with a planet that it not contaminate the planet in some way. Um, I I know this may not be your particular uh, set of expertise but so how do how does nasa make sure that the lander doesn't in any way uh contaminate the the environment of europa there's a team of people that are in charge of that that's my (laughs) answer to that um so the lander is actually separate from the orbiting spacecraft now and they're gonna planning to launch and again i don't work on the lander so i'm not the expert but um so they're in the planning phase too but there is a whole team of people that work in planetary protection Mm. and so they are basically the people that make sure that you follow x y and z requirements um, as far as contamination goes and like microbes that go in the spacecraft so things that we have to look at even on europa clipper which is the name of the orbiting spacecraft is when you're testing the spacecraft you have to be in this bunny suit so you don't get particles all over the spacecraft and contaminate things. Um, so there's a whole team of people that do that work, and I basically just follow what they tell me to do. <laughs> <laughs> Is there a, a space game that you like the best, or a game that you feel has captured the majesty of space, or the scale of space, or just the potential of the exploration? Is anything stand out to you? I don't know if you played No Man's Sky. Jason and I kind of got that sense from mm-hmm. from the game a little bit. I did play No Man's Sky last year when it came out. I have not tried the update, mm-hmm. but I did download, re-download the game because I heard that the update did made some quality of life improvements, and so I've been meaning to play it. I've just been distracted. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. 
So I did enjoy that, but as far as space games that come to mind about ones that I love, it's of course the original Mass Effect trilogy. Yeah. Um, I think that's sort of an yeah. easy answer, but I played all three of those games at least twice through each, and I love them. So they not only give me the cool space environment and the ability to travel around different galaxies and solar systems, but it also gives me that sense of exploration and the RPG qualities that I look for in a game. So it's a great all-around package for the type of mm-hmm. game that I like. Yeah. All right. Well, tell people where they can find you because you're on Twitter, you're on Twitch, you blog about video games sometimes. I am on Twitter at Molly E. Bittner. I just recently started blogging about games and space, and you can find that on my Twitter page, but I literally just started it two weeks ago. Um, So if you want to find out more about space or games, just follow me on Twitter and you can connect to me from there. All right. Well, I was extremely excited when we connected on Twitter because I noticed that you follow me. I saw your bio and it aligns with some of my other nerdy interests. So I'm I'm happy to have someone on the inside at NASA who I can ask these questions to. And just thanks for all your work on Cassini over the last several years and your future work on Europa Clipper. This is all fascinating to me. And it's amazing that we're able to do these things. And by we, I mean you. So, <laughs> so thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, guys. I've really had a great time talking to you. Okay, Space Week continues after a brief break. We'll be back to talk Metroid with Rob Harvilla. All right, so sticking with the Space Week theme, it is time to talk Metroid. And there's a piece up at TheRinger.com right now by our next guest, our colleague, Rob Harvilla. It's about yeah. Metroid as the best space series of all time. It has been 30 years last month since the original Metroid came out in North America. And Samus has finally returned now in Metroid Samus Returns, which is out today. Rob wrote about both of those things. He's joining us now. Hello, Rob. Hello. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so... I was a fetus when Metroid came out, or or actually, that's not true. A, z- I guess, a, z- a zygote? Yeah, I was a fetus when it came out in Japan. I was eight months old or oh, so dear. when it came out in, in North America. So for youngins like me who missed Metroid, what was that experience like at the time? Because I didn't really start playing Metroid until much later, I guess, when Metroid Fusion and Metroid Prime both came out in 2002. That was really my introduction to Metroid. So what was it like for you at the time or whenever you first played it? Well, I have to confess, first of all, I have a vivid memory of being a wee lad in 1987 and having to choose as my new Nintendo game between Metroid and Kid Icarus. Uh-huh. You remember Kid Icarus? Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Greek, Greek mythology, you know, it somehow avoided the gnarlier aspects of Greek mythology, such as how the Icarus myth ended. But, you know, I played that game over Metroid at the time. I'm not proud of that. You know, it was fine. Kid Icarus was, but it was not Metroid, mm-hmm. unfortunately. Uh, I did get around to it. And, yeah, I, I my thinking at the time as whatever, an eight or nine-year-old, was that, like, the big three for Nintendo was Super Mario, Zelda, and Metroid. Mm-hmm. Like those games all kind of came out in the same, I guess, two year period. And they, you know, they were all sort of equally world rocking, you know, if you happen to be an eight year old kid at the time, you know, I, I, 
just just the overwhelming openness of it. You know, I think I've written it and I wrote in the piece. And when, when we did that thing uh, about like, the, well, what's the best video game since Ocarina of Time? I, I yeah. said Metroid Prime. Um, and I, I sort of talked about the original Metroid as like it, it, it being trailblazing for the simple fact that it starts and you have to go to the left you know, to get the morph ball, which lets you go to the right. Like just the yeah. notion that you would go left instead of automatically go right in a mm. side scrolling game in 1987 was pretty mind blowing. Like that in Zelda or, you know, my first experience with that kind of thing, at least like just the openness of it. And just, I don't know how I beat it or like knew where to go. And I'm assuming the answer is Nintendo power. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I was, I was an Nintendo power subscriber, but like obviously way pre-internet, like Metroid doesn't really tell you anything. It's like, go blow these people, go blow these aliens up. And you're like, fine. And like, you just, you're just sort of roaming around like, and then like the places you have to go, you have to figure out like how to get to them and the things you need to get to them. And like, you don't, necessarily even understand like what the things the items that you get do at first like it's yeah. just the open worldness of it and just the lack of any kind of context or guidance or direction you know was was pretty amazing to me at least mm -hmm. yeah it's it's a strange series because it's still really the big three it's the big three for nintendo now are basically the same as they were 30 years ago which is one of the great things yeah. about nintendo but Metroid is different from the other two in that it will just sometimes go years and years and years with no new entry in the series. We're used to having a new Mario game, a new Zelda game on every system. Yeah. It's a big deal if there's not. But this game, Samus Returns, this is the first true Metroid release since Other M in 2010. And really, I mean, if you want to go back to maybe like a classic metroid game or a game that was as well received as most metroid games you have to go back a decade i guess to metroid prime 3 so metroid just disappears yeah. for a while and and we know that there's another metroid coming for switch at some point in the next few years presumably but there's i guess a lot less metroid than there is the uh, other members of the big three yeah, I mean, I was I was gonna guess that like Metroid has been supplanted by like I don't know like Mario Kart or Super Smash Brothers or mm -hmm. one of those games. Like, yeah, it just doesn't seem to be a necessity for people the way that a Mario and a Zelda are. And it, yeah, and it's I other M was okay. Like another thing that I really liked about the original Metroid and that I liked about this new 3DS Metroid is like there's no dialogue. Like, there's no story, there's no real, you know, the cutscenes are just sort of tiny things where, like, she's looking at something and then it jumps out and attacks her. Like, there's no story, you know, it's not like a Metal Gear Solid game. Like, Other M, like, it was okay as a game, the gameplay, but, like, there were gigantic cutscenes and, like, you know, just long sort of inner dialogue, flashback type stuff that just seemed totally unnecessary. Like, for some reason, even as, like, an adolescent, like, I don't know if I was projecting my own neurosis onto it but just the quiet of metroid and like like she there's nobody to talk to you know and there's nothing to read and like if she just seems totally alone and is just sort of wandering around and everything's trying to kill her like there was just something very sort of weirdly serene and nice about that you know that it wasn't trying to tell a story necessarily and so this new game basically doesn't do that either like the thing is you know it's a remake first of all of like 
a Game Boy game that Metroid 2, like the actually the second Metroid that came out like, a couple years after the NES, and it came out on the original Game Boy, and it was super like hard. Like again, you're just sort of thrown into this map, and they don't really tell you what to do other than there are 40 Metroids here. Like you have to kill them all. Like there's really a direction. And you have to, if you don't have Nintendo power, you sort of have to painstakingly like bomb every single block mm-hmm. of every single wall and floor and ceiling and, and the room until like you find where you have to go. And like, I, I, that, you know, I had a lot more time to do that back then than I do now. And so yeah. what I like about the 3DS game is that, it, you know, you can, it gives you the option of painstakingly finding everything, but it also gives you like this tool, like I forget what it's called right now, but there's a way, like as soon as you walk into a room, like you can press this button and like a map opens up and like gives you the exact outline of the room and also pinpoints any breakable blocks. Like it basically tells you where the secrets are. And I can see how that's sort of sacrilegious to some people who want to get the 100% completion, you know, without being told anything. But, you know, for somebody who's trying to pick it up for like an hour here and there and like wants to make actual progress and like wants to feel some sense of accomplishment, like I feel like it's just a nice little it's nicely fixed between like diehard fans and like very casual fans like me, you know. Um, The interesting thing about the Metroid era, that era of games, is that, uh, like you said, Nintendo Power was it. That was if you couldn't figure out how to beat the game, you just could not beat the game. I remember there was might have been Metroid or something else that uh, took up like an entire school year, like between me and three friends trying to figure out how to beat this game. Um, I don't know how long your gaming history stretched past that, but um, can you talk about what, what, what's it like to just have no idea how to finish a game? That's really something that's gone away now. Right. Yeah, like I, I was, you know, you would ask like why maybe Metroid isn't as popular as Mario or Zelda, and that may, might be part of the reason why. Like I, I think that Metroid may be a click more difficult and a bit less interested in like guiding you along, traditionally speaking. Like I'm trying to remember the Metroid Primes. You know, I had kids by that point, and so I was less hardcore of a gamer for sure. But like I feel like I got through that all right, you know without any serious external help you know i'm trying to think of a game like you're saying a nintendo game that i absolutely couldn't beat because i didn't know what to do like there's definitely games that were too hard like i could never beat ninja gate and mm. i could never beat castlevania um which is maybe embarrassing but i'm trying to think of a game where like i just didn't know where to go and i think maybe because of nintendo power that never happened but I think that it is an option, at least with some Metroids. Like the the game that this new 3DS game is remaking, again, the Game Boy game is, I think, regarded as one of the harder Metroids just by dint of there being no direction whatsoever. And like the Game Boy, as a technology, has not aged as well as other technologies. And it's just, just imagining myself, you know, as a 12 year old, like squinting at this tiny square black and white screen, like trying to discern which block in this is the one that's going to do whatever like i can imagine i don't think i ever beat that you know i can totally imagine tapping out of that and so i think at least in some cases metroid has been at peace with that potentially happening to you and that maybe makes it a little less universal a little less essential 
for, you know, even hardcore Nintendo people, you know, and I think that this new game at least sort of acknowledges that and you can, you can go for the hundred percent completion and you can backtrack pretty hardcore and you can do it without, you know, the direction of this thing that tells you where all the secrets are and what exactly the map looks like. But you can also use all those things that aren't really cheats because they gave them to you. So you don't feel guilty necessarily, but I, it, it really walks that line well, you know, and it sort of, unifies the way that I played games when I was an adolescent and the way that I play them now. Mm -hmm. And in your piece, you make the case that Metroid is the best space video game franchise of all time, obviously (laughs) subjective title, but yeah. (laughs) Why, why do you think that that's the case? Obviously there are space games that take place more in space directly, whether it's, you know, flying in space or that kind of thing. But Metroid has, I guess, that exploration and sense of the unknown aspect to it. I mean, the honest answer to that is is the first one I could think of. (laughs) You know, I I have not played, like, the Mass Effect games, which I think Mm -hmm. I've seen, Jason, you talk about quite a bit. And so I, maybe some of the other big series that I just haven't played, you know, I, it seems like one of the longest tenured space franchises for sure you know mm-hmm. one of the more storied you know and i i you know yeah i it's what are the other big ones like what what is what is metroid's competition here maybe there is something halo i guess uh you know ah uh, halo would halo i really dig the halo games and so i can understand that i yeah. can dig that i would i guess i would argue that metroid has slightly more range like the halo games are kind of different but kind of not different like they're all pretty fundamentally the same and you know it's sort of a function of the technology involved but just the the distance from the nes metroid to metroid prime you know is is pretty substantial and and, you know by necessity the series had to have a little more range and do a few different things just based on the technology at the time and so Maybe in that way, and maybe just for the sheer nostalgia factor of it, I'd probably still side with Metroid. But yeah, Halo is great. I would I would not be mad at anybody who preferred it, for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess it depends how you define a space game, whether you're talking about something right. that is like literally taking place in space, whether you're counting like Star Wars games and StarCraft and, yeah. you know, Dead Space or, uh, I don't know, I mean, Ratchet, yeah. Ratchet and Clank even is a space game or uh, I have Eve or something like that. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of games that I guess could have the case, but in terms of games that are sort of space games and also are as storied as the Metroid series, that's not a very long list. So I, I think it's... Toe a... Jam and Earl. <laughs> sure, yeah. Number two is Toe Jam and Earl. Yeah, just based <laughs> on the one. <laughs> yeah. Um, the end of Metroid really is kind of a landmark game, a landmark moment in gaming because, uh, uh, you know, at that point, uh, Samus takes off her helmet and it's revealed to be a woman. Um, do you remember what you felt at that moment? What that was like? I mean, really, it was, it really was, it really was groundbreaking at the time to be like, oh, wow, wait, what? Yeah, I'm trying I'm trying to remember how I found out about that and I don't think that I organically found out by beating it and it happened. I think that I would vaguely remember that if it happened. I think that I didn't get that ending 
then heard about it. There was that code. It's the person's name, like Justin Bailey. Like there's some code that you put in the password. There's some password that's like a dude's name. Like, I don't know if it was a programmer or whatever, but you put it in and like, you get that ending. Like, I don't know where it puts you, but it's right to the point where you blow up mother brain and then get that ending. Um, but yeah, I mean, that was fairly mind blowing. Uh, you, you know, the shoulder pads maybe should have been a giveaway, but they weren't. And yeah, it was definitely surprising to me, but I, I wish I could remember how I heard, but I think it was through like, that code or something like I got it secondhand in a way that probably diluted the impact, you know, of, of discovering that at like two 30 in the morning during a sleepover or whatever. But like, yeah, it was definitely a big deal. I, I didn't realize until I was researching just writing today that like the best possible ending, if you beat it in under, there's like five different endings and there are three where she's, it's revealed she's a female and one is the helmet and one is the whole suit and one is a bikini. If you beat it in under an hour, she's in a bikini. Mm. And it's like, well, that's kind of unfortunate. Yeah, that's unfortunate. <laughs> you know, it's, it's call it a wash, like enlightened, enlightenment wise. You know, it's, it's a very beer commercial moment, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. So Samus returns. Your verdict is that Samus has fully returned. This feels like classic Metroid in every way, more or less, other than the concessions to modernity and people who don't have time to <laughs> explore it in the same way anymore. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's it, it definitely looks and feels and plays like a Metroid game, you know, and it's it sort of pitched exactly to me. Like I, I, the games that I play are usually actual old games or new games that are deliberately designed to play like or look like old games, you know? And I, I think it kind of splits the difference there. Like it's very pretty and very detailed and like the 3DS is still pretty cool and effective in that way. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's pretty much classic gameplay like there's only you know the only real innovation is this sort of counter system where like instead of you walk into a room and just start blasting everything like you're supposed to wait until they attack you and do this sort of timing thing that increases you know your power and you blow them up at one hit as opposed to like, taking you know 10 or 15 hits like there's sort of a rhythm to it that's pretty cool and sort of pretty gratifying once you get a hold of it but like it's it's definitely a remake you know, it definitely feels like a remake and a thing that, that's trying to evoke the past more than it is to push something forward, which is probably the right move if they're, you know, reintroducing this franchise that mostly there was some game last year for three D S, like it was like a multiplayer thing. I don't the name of it escapes me right now, but like one of the more minor entries in the series, but like you say, other M for the we for the was it the Wii or the Wii U? It was in 2000, I think 10 was the last yeah, real the, one. The Wii, so, I think, right? Okay, yeah. So as a way to like introduce it, you know, this is probably a smart thing. And like as you say, it, who knows how long the Switch one is going to take? Like when the Switch came out, what I told myself was, I'll buy this thing if they make a Metroid for it. <laughs> you know, and so I, I guess I guess I'm in now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Federation Force was the one last year that I think right, is right. Yeah, yeah. generally scorned by true Metroid believers. <laughs> so, yeah. They're hard to please. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, you can find Rob's piece at The Ringer right now. You can find Rob on Twitter at Harvilla. Rob, thank you for coming back on. Thanks, dudes. Appreciate it. Thank you. Okay. That will do it for today. 
If you head to TheRinger.com, you can check out all of our Space Week content from the site this week. You can, of course, find us on Twitter at AchievementPod, on Facebook at Facebook.com slash groups slash Achievement Oriented. You can rate and review and subscribe to the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Your ratings and reviews are much appreciated. We'll be back next week. Same time, same place. We'll be talking about Walt Williams' new book, Significant Zero, another book about video game development, this time from the inside. We'll also be talking about some big news. Jason is now a video game writer. He did some writing for NBA 2K18. This is extremely cool. I'm looking forward to talking to him about that experience. We're also going to talk to the director of 2K18. It'll be fun. Jason's an industry insider. So you've been listening to Achievement Oriented, part of the Ringer Podcast Network.